verses 1 to 12. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, if you've been tracking the sports world over the past few months, you'll have seen a number of blockbuster trades, and I apologize for the plethora of sports illustrations that I use, but I'm sorry. This has a purpose. Uh, you'll have seen a number of blockbuster trades, so NBA superstar Kyrie Irving traded to the Boston Celtics. <laughs> Former uh, Major League Baseball Cy Young winner Justin Verlander sent to the Houston Astros. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and as you've tracked those trades, if you've seen pictures of the press conferences, you'll have seen these star players not only just sitting there and asking, a, answering a barrage of questions from the media, but then standing up with the owner and the coach and either like sporting the team hat or holding up the team jersey. And, and that's a sign, right? It's a sign that the deal has been done. They have a new team. Their allegiance has changed. So for me, as a basketball fan, seeing Kyrie Irving out of a Cavaliers uniform and now holding a Celtics jersey felt really weird. Not bad, just weird. But that didn't change the reality that he now works for Boston. He's going to try his hardest to beat his old team and bring a championship to Beantown. And you know, for those of us who are Christians here this morning, something similar to that has happened to us. So before we knew Christ, we were enslaved to sin. We were eager to hate God. Even if we didn't think of ourselves as God-haters, that's exactly what we were. We pledge allegiance not to him, but to ourselves. We loved not him, but this world. We obeyed not his will, but our own desires. But when God saved us, when we were given by God's amazing grace, new hearts to trust in Christ, we were changed. We switched teams. We began to pledge allegiance to King Jesus, not King me. 
We began to live for our Savior. And, and just as a new jersey symbolizes a trade in the sports world, we also took a symbol of our new allegiance, didn't we? We were baptized. We professed publicly that we are now followers of Christ. So in a way, now as Christians, we live with a new jersey on. We live for God. Being a Christian is not about a one-time decision, but about a lifetime lived for God. It's about growing in holiness out of the new life we have in Christ, living to honor our King. I think we see this truth in our passage that Dan has just read for us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you'll remember so far, we've learned that this is a letter from an early Christian missionary named Paul to a church he has just started in a city called Thessalonica, now Thessaloniki in modern-day Greece. And Paul is writing to encourage them, as we've been seeing, to tell them how grateful he is that they are continuing to seek after Christ. He's just rejoicing in their new spiritual life, and he wants to exhort them to persevere, to continue to pledge allegiance to Jesus. And as we've considered the first three chapters, we've seen Paul just reacting to this with an overflow of joy and thanksgiving. He's so happy that his work among this new church has borne fruit. But now as we begin to study these final two chapters, we see Paul's tone change just a bit. We see him become more of a teacher, more of a father, exhorting his family to holiness. And this morning, let's see two things that he teaches them about how to live their new life in Christ. So first, there in verses 1 through 8, we have seen him exhort the new Christians at Thessalonica to holiness, not impurity. And that's where we'll spend most of our time this morning. And then second, in verses 9 through 12, we'll see Paul exhort the Thessalonians to love, not idleness. So first, the Thessalonians are to live in holiness, not in purity. Look there in verse 1. Paul says, finally, and, and that's not so much him introducing or indicating kind of the end of the letter as it is him introducing a new section in the letter. He's saying, finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Remember at the end of chapter 3, Paul expressed his desire to go back to Thessalonica to supply what was lacking in their faith. And remember, Paul, Paul had taught them the gospel while he was there. They had responded in faith. He had begun to teach them about Christ. But then a riot broke out. You can read about this in Acts uh, he had been forced to leave quickly by night without much of a goodbye. And so now he's just yearning to go back and, and teach them more. He, he's left the job sort of undone. Uh, they've trusted in Christ, but they need to be coached up, taught up, taught up about what that means, how they're to live. So Paul wants to get back to them. But in the meantime, chapters 4 and 5 are kind of like him saying, but until then, in the meantime, here's some teaching. Because, as he says there in verse 2, no, in verse 1, he wants them to walk and to please God. To walk and to please God. And before we just zoom past those words, realize, church family, how amazing those words are. I mean, before we dive into these ethical commands that Paul's going to lay out for these new Christians, let's just be reminded how amazing it is that we can actually please God. 
in our sin, there was nothing we could do to please him. Seriously, everything we did was for our own good, our own pride, our own pleasure. Even things that looked good were done so that we would look good. In every way, we were opposed to God. Paul in Romans calls us God's enemies in our sin. But remember what God did, church. In his mercy, he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a life that perfectly pleased God. God looked at him and said, I am well pleased with you, son. Everything you're doing brings a smile to my face. That's the way Jesus lived. He lived like you and I should have lived. And because he was perfect, he deserved God's eternal favor. He deserved praise and honor. He deserved to come to the end of his life and receive a crown of glory from his father. But he didn't. When Jesus came to the end of his perfect life, he received not a crown of glory, but a crown of thorns. He was sentenced to be killed and died an excruciating death on a Roman cross, a death you and I deserved for our sin against God. Jesus did that for us. When he died, all the sins of those who would ever trust in him were placed on his shoulders and all his perfection placed on ours. That was God's salvation plan all along. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to know this. We church people don't think we're pleasing to God and getting to heaven because we're better than everyone else. Because somehow we've worked our way into God's good graces. Quite the opposite. We are the worst of sinners because we know our hearts. Our only hope of being saved, of being pleasing to God, of making it to heaven, is that Jesus is our substitute. That Jesus died in our place, that he took the judgment we deserved and gave to us the perfect righteousness he deserved. Our only hope is that. That when God looks at us, he sees not our sin, but his son's righteousness and says, I am well pleased with you. If you don't know that smile from God, you can. You can know his acceptance, not by trying harder, but by repenting of your sin, humbling yourself, trusting in the cross. In Christian church, before we dive into how to live as Christians, we must remember this gospel. We are only pleasing to God through Christ. And one of the amazing things about the gospel is that in the gospel, in, through the blood of Christ, we are made spiritually alive, new. We have new hearts. And now it's possible. In fact, it's even inevitable that if we are truly brought into uh, union with Christ by the power of the Spirit, we will begin to live ways that actually please God. Isn't that amazing? We can please God again do what we were created to do in the first place. What joy. We don't have to earn that. We need to live out the new life we've been given. So in light of that, we come to Paul's instruction here. We take his gospel commands here in the verses Dan has just read for us, not as rules we follow in order to make ourselves acceptable to God, but as, listen, as freedom-giving opportunities to live out the joy-filled life God has given us. 
God has saved us and is intended to make us more like his son. We've been saved not to live however we want, but however he wants. That's freedom. We have been saved for holiness. That's where we'll find joy. As the Westminster Confession has famously put it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So how do we start, Paul? Give us your instruction, apostle. Well, he begins there in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul doesn't mince words usually. He's taught the Thessalonians this before. We see that as he repeatedly says throughout this passage, as I've told you, as you heard. But he knows they need reminding. As Christians, they are to abstain from sexual immorality. That word for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. So any sort of sexual intimacy, not in the context of marriage. Thessalonica, and indeed much of the ancient Greek world, was noted for their moral license. So marriage was open. Affairs were expected. Men especially were free to pursue their passions. And so Paul knows he's swimming against the culture here. The Thessalonians were even coming out of religions that demanded and promoted promiscuity. That was part of how they pleased their gods. And now Paul's coming along and saying, well, the one true God who has converted you and brought you to himself, he demands that you leave that former way of life and hold marriage and intimacy in high esteem. Paul continues in verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Now, it's always comforting as a young pastor to be reading scholars that say this is the hardest verse to interpret, or at least one of them, in the whole of the New Testament. So there are many different ways that scholars debate about what exactly the phrase control your own body means. Uh, It could mean Paul urging Christian men to take wives as a way to combat temptation and immorality. But I think it's helpful for us, and this is a very acceptable interpretation, that Paul is teaching on a wider level that everyone at Thessalonica should gain mastery over their lustful desires. So there's ambiguity there, but the overarching point is that as Christians, we are to be holy in this realm of sexuality. We are to live this part of our lives in honor to God. The Thessalonian Christians were to live in a way diametrically opposed to the world around them. Instead of giving their bodies to dishonor, they were to control themselves in the power of the Holy Spirit. Instead of letting their lust drag them around like a bull with a hook in its nose, they were to deny sinful temptation. Notice how Paul talks about giving in to this sin. He says, it not only wrongs us, it wrongs one another. See there in verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Sexual sin is never a private thing. It always has collateral damage to the lives of others. And so instead of doing that, the Thessalonians were urged to live lives of sacrificial love not selfish, abusive love. 
You know, as I was thinking about this this past week, I feel a burden here to talk to teenagers and young adults here. You must understand here that Paul is not some sort of religious prude. He's not preaching purity because he doesn't want us to have fun in life, because he's a boring stickler for the rules. Now, you must understand Paul is all about pleasure. He just wants the most he can get. And he knows he'll never get that if he's left free to follow his own passions. So you may often hear that you need to follow the desires of your own heart, follow your own passions. It's there that you'll really express who you are and find freedom. That's not what the Bible teaches. And, And frankly, that's a lie that always exposes itself. You'll find that your heart is sinful and will lead you to despair if you follow it. Your heart, left in sin, doesn't, doesn't even know how to define true joy, let alone find it. So if you follow your desires, you will find yourself in bondage to them and imprisoned by them. There will be no way out. And I speak from experience here, guys. Only in Christ will you be truly free, truly free to find the highest pleasures, the greatest joys. I mean, God has designed our bodies, right? He's designed our bodies for his glory. He's designed our bodies with a purpose for us to live out our desires in a way that glorifies him. And and what's amazing is that when we seek after God's glory, we will find our highest joy. Those two will always come together. So shouldn't we trust God to know what's best for us? Church, sexual sin seems to have been an issue for the Thessalonians. Is it an issue for us? Can we take Paul's words here directly for us? I think we can. I'm not picking on any of you. I'm picking on myself, first of all. I'm picking on a sin that I know is endemic to the churches in this area and in this country at large. Church family, let's take warning from Paul. Let's take it to heart. Sexual sin will kill us if we're not careful. It's so pervasive. It's so insidious. Because we think we can keep it hidden. That's private. That it won't affect anyone else. But it will always find us out. And I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about us. I'm concerned that in a Christian culture where such high premium is placed on looking put together and clean and just like a good Christian person, we'll think that that's a sin we can secretly, safely hide away. I'm concerned that we'll think we can get away with it. Dear family, if you're here this morning and this is an area of struggle in your life, I beseech you, don't hide that. Find somebody in the church and confess it. Don't become a slave to it as it is harbored in your soul. You need freedom in Christ. It's found nowhere else. So I don't know if your issue is online or with novels or at work with those you work with or primarily just in thoughts that you think. But wherever it is, just drag it kicking and screaming out of those corners. Don't make peace with it. It'll kill you spiritually. 
And just to reassure you, we won't be disgusted with you if you confess sin like that to us. I mean, really? If you knew my heart? I assure you, if you think you're the only one who struggles with what you struggle with, you are not. It's hard to surprise people who are honest with their hearts. So bring it out to the light. Talk to me or, or Brad or someone else in the church that you trust. So let, let us pray for you. Let us encourage you. Listen, Jesus didn't conquer our sin by his death on the cross so we could spend our lives enslaved to it. That's taking the cross of Christ way too lightly. No, he died so we would have victory over it. And I know as I prayed before in the, in the petition, I know sexual sin brings with it much shame. But just remember, Christian, all that shame has been placed on the cross. You bear it no more. It's been put to death. So let's be holy together. Sin, especially sin of this nature, can tempt us to isolate ourselves. So let's be holy together. Let's not be like that mountain climber that I read about as a boy who tried to go alone up the mountain and ended up falling in a crevasse or crevice, however they say it in the United States calling for help with, with someone to answer, but no one hearing him. Let's travel towards heaven arm in arm. Let's climb the mountain together. We need one another so that when one falls and cries for help, another will hear and another will help. I notice there in verses six through eight, two motivations for holiness in this area. First, verse 6, at the end there, the Lord is an avenger in these things. God will judge sin. If no one else sees your sin, you can be sure God will. Every single sin will be avenged. Boy, is that a motivation to holiness. That's a motivation to place our sin on Christ and become like him so that in the end we see him bear the judgment for us. And then second motivation in verses 7 through 8 is that God has given us strength to be holy. This is not something we do on our own. So in verse 7, we see that he has called us to holiness, not impurity. And then in verse 8, He's given his very spirit, the very spirit of God, the very spirit that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead to us, to indwell us, to occupy our hearts, to inform our affections, to open our eyes, to enlighten our minds so that we can grow in holiness. How can we ever hope to control the passions that often seem to just run away with us? We often feel like we're just like holding onto a rope at the end of a car and just dragging us and we have no way to let go without dying. Christians, God's spirit dwells in us. God has commanded us to be holy and he's given us all the ability in the world to do that through his spirit. Reminds me of the prayer from Augustine. Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. In other words, Lord, tell me how to live for you and then give me the strength to do it. God delights to give his very own spirit to his people so we can live for his glory. And God will do that through us. Let's be ready to be changed by him. 
Right, so that's the bulk of our passage. But let's finish up by looking there briefly at verses 9 through 12. So Paul has exhorted the Thessalonians to holiness, not impurity. And now secondly and finally, he exhorts the Thessalonians to love, not idleness. So we spent much of last week focusing on this idea of loving one another in response to how Christ has loved us at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we see here Paul picking up that theme again, kind of bookending his talk on sexual purity with calls to love. Verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So it's, it's evident throughout this letter that the Thessalonians were growing by leaps and bounds in their love for each other. They were giving of themselves to one another. They were caring for each other in Christ. And, and as Paul has mentioned elsewhere in his letter, this love hasn't been kind of held within their four walls or even their city. It's spread across their region. It's spread across Macedonia, he says there. And so their response to the gospel was appropriate. It showed the new hearts they had been given because they wanted desperately to love others as they had been loved by Christ. And yet, Paul knows they still need exhortation in this area. Verse 10, we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So what's going on there? I mean, what's Paul getting at? Well, again, um, scholars have different opinions, but one thing that seems like it, it could have been happening is that Christians in Thessalonica had become lax in their labors and in their work because they thought Jesus was coming back soon, which he is, but not as soon as they thought. And we'll see next week more of Paul's teaching on the return of Christ. But here in their view, they might have been thinking, you know, Jesus is all, almost back. Let's, let's relax. Let's, you know, we can mooch off one another. We love each other. We can slack off a bit. It's all going to burn anyway, right? And, and whatever the case may be that Paul's referencing here, he's saying, stop that. That's unloving too. So not only is sexual immorality contrary to love, it's a way of, verse 6, dishonoring and wronging each other, so is being idle and lazy, says Paul. And Paul, in a way there, in that second phrase, says, mind your own business. Uh, late, later in his second letter to the Thessalonians, he'll do this again more at length, exhorting the church not to be busybodies, sort of meddling in each other's affairs unhelpfully. See, there's, there's a way in which we can, we always talk about being in one another's lives. We sign a church covenant that necessitates that we are in each other's lives. But there's a way that we can be in one another's lives with the primary motivation of seeing one another flourish in Christ. And then there's a way we can be involved in each other's lives with a primary motivation to use one another for our own purposes, to get things from other people. So Paul is saying that a very real way the Thessalonians can love one another well is to work hard, to not be unnecessary burdens to one another, Again, this isn't to discount what we've been talking about throughout this letter, that Paul is clear, clearly teaching that we are to love each other sacrificially within the church family, lay ourselves down for one another, even when it's convenient. But we must do so without laziness or idleness. That is unloving. And like we saw last week, 
The way we love each other in the church is a direct testimony to the world around us about who Christ is. Look there in verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So family, if we meddle in gossip or if we're lazy when it comes to loving others or prepare, uh, providing for those under our roof, we will bring dishonor on the name of Christ. We'll be like bad diplomats, unhelpfully representing our king before a foreign people. And so Christian, here's one way that came to mind for me as I thought about how we could apply these final verses to our hearts this morning. Are there ways you need to work harder, labor more diligently to increase the health of this local church? Members of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, we're responsible and tasked with loving one another and promoting the health of this body for the glory of Christ. And so it's always a helpful question. How can we be more diligent in that pursuit? If these are the people we're spending eternity with, how can we encourage them now? Here's one suggestion. In light of kind of where Paul's been going as a whole and how we took as our theme this morning that God's people must be holy, maybe we should respond to Paul's exhortations in both of these sections this morning with the same thing. That is pursuing our own personal holiness. Because remember, we've said this before, but remember, Christian, that your own personal holiness, your own personal battling with sin, your own personal commitment to Christ is not just something between you and the Lord. If you've covenanted together with this family of believers, the way that you pursue Christ on your own will either build up or tear down the health of this church as a whole. So a way for you to love your brothers and sisters here at Loudoun Valley this week is for you to battle sin. Turn away from it. Pour out your heart to your Savior and pursue him and ask him to help you by his spirit to work hard to deny yourself and to give yourself to your Savior. What a joyful pursuit, church. Aren't we glad that the faith that we have is not something we can just flippantly accept and then just live however we want? God loves us too much for that. He wants us to know the joys of knowing him. So let's get after it, church. What are we waiting for? In this pursuit, we're going to find true freedom. We're going to find true joy. Let's run after Jesus. Let's do it together until he returns. Let's pray to the end. Oh God, we need you. We're so often tempted by our sin. But for those of us here who are Christians, you have set us free. We are not in bondage anymore. So help us, Spirit, to live for you. Give us glimpses, even today, of the greater joy, the greater pleasure, the greater honor of living for you and not our own lusts and passions. Lord, when we find it hard to think about how we can love one another, may it come to mind that we ought to individually pursue you so that we might contribute as members of this body to the health of the whole. 
Lord, we were once lost in sin. We were rebels against you. Praise God, you sent Jesus to deliver us. And so we're going to finish this morning by not necessarily thinking only about the holiness we need, but about the holiness we've been given. Lord, all we want, all we have is you. Give us hearts to praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen.